All right, well, welcome to Parkview East. If you're new here, we love awkward silences, and this is just the total norm, so you'll fit right in if you enjoy those as well. Uh, my name is Doug, one of your pastors, and it's a joy to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I sure hope you do, I would invite you to take them out and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. As a church this summer, we've been walking through the Ten Commandments, and uh, we're this morning looking at the the Sixth Commandment. So as you're finding your way there, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, all right? Father God, Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you as your people. Lord, we thank you for your word, which comes to us this morning. We believe it to be eternal and true. And we simply ask this morning that you would write it on our hearts, that you would form us as uh, the people you have made us to be. Um, we love you and just recognize that your presence is in this place. Would you lead our time right now? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, I've lived in Iowa City for some 20 years, and I, I love this community. There's so much about Iowa City I just love, okay? There are a few frustrations. If you've lived here, maybe you can identify with this one. Um, one specific frustration is that uh, I find myself regularly over the course of the last 20 years um, anytime I were to like, let's say I were to just get in my car and leave this location and head to another destination, um, it wouldn't be till I like shift into drive that I start to think in my mind, what's the fastest way to get from point A to point B? If you've lived here very long, you've known that there is like a whole, like, like a plethora of options that you can choose from, a variety of different routes you could take, and there is no clear obvious, most efficient path from point A to point B, unless it's like, you know, two houses down the street, right? It's just a hard town to, to navigate. It is. It's frustrating. I find myself often throughout the week heading to a location one particular way and then coming back a different way, and I think to myself, why in the world do I do that? Why do I go different directions? There's just no clear and obvious path. One of the things I love about our God and the life that he's called us to is that when we consider God, there's certainly in this world and in this life, there's no shortage of, of paths that are maybe tempting us to navigate, right? But with God and his word, it is so clear. He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't lead us to any traps. He is so clear with the path that he has for us in life, the path that he wants us as his people to walk on. It is obvious. As we read the Bible, it is clear. He's given us his word. This, he says to us, is the, the path of life that you are to walk on. As we've, been, as we've been studying the Ten Commandments, we see this reality. The Ten Commandments for us, as we've been talking about them this summer, are words to live by. They are markers on the path of life that God has set out for us. He wants us to walk on. As we've considered these commandments, the first five that we've looked at, we've, we've learned a lot about worship, the importance of worship, the, the primacy of God. We've learned about rest, the necessity for rest for our own health, what he's called us to, the invitation to enter into God's rest. Last week, we learned about the family, about the, the priority of families and parents, and um, we've learned a great deal so far. One of the things I'm hoping that you will recognize throughout our study of the Ten Commandments is that it is very clear as we go through these commandments that God has made us as relational creatures. 
We are people who are designed for relationship. Both vertical relationship, our, our relationship with God, and also horizontal relationship. The, the way that we live in relationship, the, the path that God has laid out for us is a relational path. The Ten Commandments make this very clear. Now, there are some, like you could say, the first five are really about cultivating that, that vertical aspect, dimension of our relationship with God. The next five are really turning their focus to the horizontal relationship, the relationship with our neighbors. But the truth could be said about each one of these commandments. They all have vertical and horizontal implications. And we will see that here in the Sixth Commandment this morning. God is interested how we live in the context of these relationships. And thank God, he gives us guidance. Once again, he doesn't leave us guessing. How we are to relate to him and to one another is clear as we consider his word. So, the sixth commandment. Let me read it for you real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. You shall not murder. You shall not murder sermon text for today. You shall not murder. As we consider what God means with this commandment, why does this commandment have to be stated? Why does it have to be commanded? We'll see sort of a big idea that we're going to charge all of us with this morning from God's word, and it's this. As a result of the sixth commandment, we learn we must cherish all human life. If you're taking notes, I would write that down. According to God's word, we are called as God's people to cherish all, underline, circle, put little asterisks by it, all human life. It's the main point of the message today. As we consider this verse and this commandment specifically, we'll look at three different aspects. First is what is the commandment saying? What is it saying? Second is why does it need to be said? And third, the how, not how to get away with murder, but how to obey the commandment, okay? The what, the why, and the how. So first up is the what. What, is, what, what does the commandment say? Again, very simple. You shall not murder. Of all the commandments that we have considered so far, this is clearly the most straightforward. It would be tempted, we are tempted to think that because it's the most straightforward, well, we don't need to talk about it. It doesn't apply. Well, pump the brakes on that thought, okay? In the original language, it's really only two words, no Murder. In fact, some of you may have memorized a translation or are familiar with the King James Version, which says, Thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew Bible has eight different words in the Old Testament that get at the, the, this meaning of killing. Okay, And it's very important that if you are using the ESV translation, that your Bible, if you're using that or there's other translations, that translate this word murder. And I would say it is the right translation. And it's the one that we should commit to memory. And here's why. It's because there is a difference between, and most of us know this, killing and murder. And what this commandment is, if you look at the language, the word that's used here, the, the word to kill is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And it's a very general category. Very general category. Killing of animals. Usually when it's, when it's used, though, it's, it's primarily, this word could be used for killing of animals, but in the Old Testament, it's primarily used sort of for two categories, warfare and capital punishment. And under these, it offers proper constraints by which killing is permissible. 
So, so when this word is used in the Old Testament, what you'll find out is that God, there's actually situations in the Old Testament where God condones it, grants permission for it. It's not the word that's used in the, in the, in the Sixth Commandment. The word that is used is a word that better translates as murder. And what we know to be different about between murder and killing is that murder is killing that is not permitted. It's unauthorized. It's malicious, unlawful killing. So the commandment could just literally be translated, no unlawful killing. Now, there's some of us that may be thinking to themselves or yourself, is this really got anything to do with me? Is this practical for me in any way, shape, or form? Do I need to hear this message? The other nine commandments speak much easier to sort of universal human temptations. Yet when we consider the sixth commandment, it's very easy to think of ourselves as if we are somehow distant from this commandment, that it may not apply. I don't murder on a regular basis. In fact, I haven't even thought about murdering anybody. I'm good to go where this one's concerned. Wrong answer. Okay, what we'll see as we go through this, that actually we're not as distant from the sixth commandment as many of us think. I'll give you two reasons why. The first is this. We are on the heels of what many refer to as the most murderous century in all of human history. Okay? We're not that far removed from it. Now, certainly there's murder that's happening all around us. Homicide rates, you could look at those. But the century, the century that just finished, the 20th century, is referred to often as a beastly generation. A historian and social theorist, Eric Hobsbawm, wrote that 187 million people were killed or allowed to die by human decision. 187 million. Just in the span of 75 years, by, between the end of from World War II to uh, the dissolution of uh, the Soviet Union, some 75, 75 years, 187 million people killed. Murderous generation. A century in which humanity discovered how easily death could be accomplished on a massive scale. It had to invent language to even describe what was happening. The term genocide born during this time. What's even more shocking when you consider is that majority, the vast majority of those deaths were at the hands of really four men in power. Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, and Mao. And obviously when you look at the numbers, it's very hard to even find accurate numbers to talk about these things because the reporting is suspect at best. The carnage that the 20th century saw was on such a large scale that it simply defies our... It's hard for us to even think about a number that big, to be honest with you. And we are successors of that generation. A generation that learned how to kill on a massive scale. Not to mention the fact that our culture has since trivialized murder and desensitized an entire generation to its reality. Mainly through... Hollywood, and video games. It's estimated that uh, by the time a student grows up and, and goes through elementary school, they ha would have seen 8,000 8, murders and over 100,000 acts of violence simply on a screen. Completely desensitized to it. That's why Pope John Paul II refers to 20th century as a culture, a century that established sort of a culture of death in our world. We're not as far removed, we're not as distant from the sixth commandment as we may think we are. 
But there's a second reason why we're not as distant. And that is, Jesus forces us to consider the root of murder. Okay? In Matthew chapter 5, what we just heard, it says, You have heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, Jesus, when he teaches on the sixth commandment, says that he's not just concerned with external effects around people of murder. He's concerned with the inward reality that produces the external consequences. John Calvin says in the law, human life is instructed not merely in outward decency, but in inward spiritual righteousness. Jesus is concerned with the heart, with the heart reality that produces a murderous culture. Jim Wilkins says in her book on the Ten Commandments, points out that it's interesting that Jesus does not overturn the commandment not to murder. Rather, she says, and I think she says so brilliantly, Jesus challenges our affection to bare minimum compliance. Jesus challenges our affection to bare minimum compliance. Oh, if I don't, as long as I don't have blood on my hands, I'm good to go. Jesus says, no. That's not the way it works. In fact, if you have anger buried in your heart, you also have blood on your hands. He takes great care to help his hearers understand the inward sin, which accounts for why murder happens in the first place. And as a result, because of that, the truth is, there's nobody in this room that's distant from this commandment. In fact... The truth is, we're tempted to break the Sixth Commandment every single day by harboring anger against our neighbor, by being filled up with hate against those who are different from us or who disagree with us. It's a temptation we all face, whether it's on the road in an expression of road rage, whether it's on social media with a post that you don't agree with or like, whether it's a difficult relationship at the workplace or in the neighborhood or in the family, every single one of us is tempted to break this commandment every single day. So, this applies. You're not as distant from it as you think. Question is why? Why does this need to be stated? Why is this such a big deal? This particular commandment, maybe of all the commandments, seems to be the most universally recognized. Thou shalt not murder. You shall not murder. Not a ton of controversy. In fact, I would suspect, I'd be willing to wager. Wouldn't wager, but I wouldn't be surprised if this happened. Let's say, if you're going to go out downtown today after church and take a random poll of 100 people, just walking maybe through Ped Mall, and just simple question, is murder wrong? My guess is, of those 100 people, they would likely all say, yeah, murder is wrong. I, I would be willing to, this is not a controversial topic in and of itself. But why? If you were to ask a next question, why do you think murder is wrong, then you would begin to see sort of a difference of opinion. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I just focus on real quick why it's wrong. First is just pragmatically speaking. And this is where most people, not a Christian, would kind of ground their understanding of, of why it's a big deal, why it needs to be stated, why it shouldn't happen. It's a matter of pragmatics. 
most would agree that this just is the way it is, and it's the way it ought to be. To tolerate murder is to tolerate a world without order in a world where everyone suffers and lives in fear. Doesn't sound very fun, right? However, Christians' primary motivation is not utilitarian in nature. When we think of the argument that we give as Christians for why murder is wrong, why anger harbored in the heart against our neighbor is wrong, it's not primarily because, well, this society won't flourish if it just is permitted. That's not the primary reason why the Bible calls us to not murder. Because, here's the deal, if the only way we can determine that murder is wrong is by declaring it's not good for society, then the next critical question that must be answered is, who determines what is good for society? That's tricky. Who has the ability to say what is good for society and what isn't? We certainly wouldn't want Adolf Hitler declaring what's good for society or Margaret Sanger for that point. Who answers that question? Who gets to declare what's good for society? So Christians, the main reason why we say, why God calls us not to murder is not because he just wants to promote the flourishing of humanity. Certainly that happens when this commandment is followed, but it's not the primary motivation. See, our logic is not made one sort of pragmatically. Rather, it is one that's made theologically. We'll see this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. The Bible offers us a more substantive explanation. Less concerned about the results, but rather, we are to be driven by a high valuation of human life. Look what Genesis 9, 6 says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. This is what God says to Noah in Genesis 9. Very simply that anyone, if you read back into verse 5, you would see anyone, whether it's man or beast, anyone who takes the life of a human being, God will hold accountable. Such a serious offense that whoever takes a life, their life will be taken as a result. Why? Well, it's right there in the text. The word is for. If I had my Bible and a pen in my hand, I would circle the word for, underline it. For, because, since, why is it such a big deal? Because God made man in his own image. What is the reason? What's the reason why it's not permissible to murder? Because humans bear the very image of God. Because they were made, God says, in my image. Notice the connection here between the sixth commandment and the first. God is to be revered. Human beings are to be treated with dignity because they are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter what background they come from. It doesn't matter what their religion is. No matter even if they are in absolute rebellion from God. They are still made in God's image. And because they are made in God's image, they are precious. They are sacred. And here's the deal. Because, of, I mean, this is, this is the foundation for Christian ethics. And the way that we treat our neighbors is that they bear God's image. 
Because they bear God's image, the way that we treat our neighbors reveals how seriously we take God. Because your neighbor bears God's image, the way you treat whoever that neighbor is. Because how you treat them, because they bear God's image, how you treat them, it reveals how seriously you take God. This is a big deal. Because we bear God's image, murder is not merely an attack against God's good creation. It's an attack against God's glory. The subtraction of human life is a subtraction from the glory of God. God takes it very seriously. We should too. There is harm done in murder, definitely to obviously the victim, to victim's family, but there's also harm done to God because that victim bears God's image. He's invested. He's very interested in how you treat your neighbor. That's why it's such a big deal. All human life is sacred. Therefore, taking human life is wrong. Period. Okay, so here's the question. That's the what, what it is, what we're talking about. It's the why, primary motivation. What's the reason why it's such a big deal? Now let's talk about how do we follow this. And this is where it gets tricky. Just want to prepare you. Uh, there's a good chance somebody in here will get offended by something I say. You will find yourself maybe cheerleading for one thing, and then five minutes later, you will be frustrated with something else I'm going to say. That's likely uh, going to happen, okay? Um, I just want to say, if you have, you know, I'm going on vacation on Wednesday, and so any comments or concerns can be directed to Pastor Dave Foster, all right? So if you <laughs> don't like any of this, and you got some questions, you can see Dave afterwards, okay? What I want to do is I want to think through, practically speaking, how do we, if the main idea is that we should cherish all human life, question that we should all be asking is, how do we do that? If it's such a big deal, how do we do it? In order to answer the question, how, I want us to think through categorically um, uh, uh, by answering the question, who, okay? So we're going to look at different categories of people that we need to cherish, okay? So first, human life is sacred. How do we follow this? How do we cherish human life? Let's first think about the unborn. About the unborn. We must cherish those who are unborn. I'm going to give you six groupings of people. Quite honestly, I can give you like 56. We could just go on. We could be here all morning, but we're not going to be. After about 10 minutes, I start to get really hot up here. So I got 10 more minutes left, I should say. Um, we must cherish those who are unborn. If we cherish the unborn, we would see abortion as a violation of the image of God. We would. The murder of an unborn child would be a subtraction from God's glory. Why? Because that unborn child is made in the image of God himself. Therefore, they are inherently valuable. A year in this country, north of 800,000 abortions are reported. Number obviously varies from one year to another. There's different policies that allow that number to go up and down from one year to the next, but roughly speaking, somewhere between 500 and 800,000 abortions in this country a year. In our community alone, we see somewhere between 3,000 and 7,000 in the state of Iowa 
abortions. Many of them happen right here in this community, right? Those numbers, because we are, because those children bear God's image, those numbers should make our stomachs churn. They should make our stomachs churn, and they should make us want to do something. What can we do? Well, the first thing we can do is we can pray. We can pray. We can pray for the babies. We can pray for the families who feel like they have no other, who find themselves oftentimes in very challenging circumstances and feel like they have no support, no help. We can pray for them. We can pray that we would be a people who would not just stay distant from this, but actually move in and build relationships with folks so that they wouldn't feel like they have no other solution. Obviously, policy is another way. This is not something that is, we just, you know, just maybe because we don't agree with the politician, we just disregard this as not relevant. This is important. It's an important topic because those children bear God's image. Prayer, policy, and people. And we talk to people about this. We stand on this word. This is our foundation, God's word. He's shown us the path to life. And it's as important for us to represent this as it is to think about how we are representing and speak. The people who disagree with you aren't your enemy. And you, you don't need to treat them like that. Okay? Oftentimes we don't get heard because we don't, we don't communicate God's word in love. Okay? So how we interact with people is critical. We must cherish the unborn. Secondly, we must also cherish those, cherish those who are born. We must also cherish those who are born. To be pro-life is more than thinking about how to protect the unborn. I'll say it one more time. To be pro-life is much, much more. It very much is thinking about how to protect the unborn, but it's much more than that. And this is oftentimes where, just say, the religious right can miss it sometimes. Okay? Mike Gerson, a speechwriter for George W. Bush, used to always say, I think it's really well said, that the unborn children should be protected by law and welcomed in life. Say it one more time. The unborn children should be protected by law and welcomed in life. And when I think of where this has played out politically, oftentimes all of our eggs have been put in the basket of protected by law. And we haven't, as oftentimes evangelicals, given much thought to how do we welcome them in life. You know, I think of people who have the gift of hospitality. There's somebody in our midst, they're not here today, but they have, many of you probably know this individual, have this wonderful gift of hospitality, right? They, they welcome people into their home so well. When you go over there, they, they, they've thought through what to serve. They've, they've thought through how to decorate. They've thought through where people are going to sit. They are, they are constantly thinking about their guests and what's going to make them the most comfortable. And if they detect any level of discomfort throughout their guest stay, it's a, it's a personal crisis on their hands. Right? Because they are so preoccupied with that individual's comfort. That a discomfort for that individual is a discomfort for them. And the same should be true with us and our fellow mankind. For children who are born. Oftentimes in challenging circumstances. Oftentimes the families who have, have very difficult circumstances. Or who have, who have uh, challenge after challenge after challenge. Have we thought through as a people how to come alongside and care for those children. They bear the image of God. And because they bear the image of God, we have a responsibility to not just protect them when they're unborn, but to also welcome them and care for them. 
when they're born. It's one of the reasons why this church prioritizes children. Because they're so precious, they're gifts. That's why at the North Campus you'll see a daycare. At the Central Campus you'll see a preschool. Here at East Campus you'll see an elementary school. Because we are determined to come alongside of families and kids and to help them, care for them, nurture them, teach them the way of God. We must cherish those who are born. Thirdly, we must also cherish those who are older than us. This isn't oftentimes the one I can think from a society standpoint we miss. We must cherish those who are older than us. Those who are older, we are to honor we are to respect those who can no longer care for themselves. We are not to dismiss and treat them like they're some sort of nuisance. They get in our way or slow us down. We are to care for them. They are God's gift to us. Now, I'll say this, and you can, you can self-select into this category. Okay? I'll give you that opportunity. If you are here today and you are older, again, completely up to you if you want to put yourself in that category. What I will say to you is you have so much to offer this church. You are so valuable. Your gifts need to be shared and displayed. You're, you need to be building relationships. You are critical. You have wisdom and experience that so many people here need. If you are younger, if you put yourself in that category, whether you know it or not, you need it. One of the great joys the last four years of East Campus has been watching Amy and Craig Welt over the years care for Amy's mom, Jean. And Jean went to be home with the Lord this past summer. But what an awesome joy for me, for our church, to watch them care for their mother. It was, it was remarkable. It's a real joy. We all have that lesson to learn to care for our aging parents, our grandparents. They're, they're a gift. They have much to offer. We ought to cherish them. We are also to cherish those who look different than us. Treating people unequally on the basis of their race or ethnicity is a, another way of breaking this commandment. Racism is another way that this commandment gets broken. Dismissing, oftentimes as it is by you know, many people in our culture, dismissing racism as irrelevant doesn't help, okay? It does not help. It's a reality that exists today. It has existed throughout humanity, and it should not surprise us, right? There has been great harm, great damage done as a result. We're all made in God's image. Jesus has called us, commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he even used to bring that point home. He, he, he showed that even when that neighbor is somebody who you don't, you don't ethnically relate to, is culturally different, all the more reason why you need to reach out and love them and care for them. And it's so frustrating to watch people dismiss the pain and trauma of racism that's been caused in this world. When, when we, it's filled with our, in our history books. We see the effects of it today. It's a very, very much so a reality. Rather than dismissing it, if we can't identify or relate or don't understand it, our responsibility is to seek to understand, to meet it, to, to, to meet the effects of it, those who have who faced it, with things like compassion and understanding. We are to cherish all human life, even those who look different than us. 
This one might be a little trickier. We're also to cherish those who think different than us. What we see in our world right now is a world that is captivated by what some call an outrage culture. An outrage culture. Those who have a different, this is the way it works, those who have a different opinion than you have instantly qualified themselves for total annihilation at any cost. No questions asked. It's so much more expedient and way more popular to turn everything into a major disagreement and to cast them off as the enemy that must be destroyed. That's what outrage culture is. And see, that's the problem. We're tempted to treat those who think differently, or you could also say uh, vote differently. We're tempted to treat them as if they are the enemy and that they must be stopped no matter what. But folks, even Jesus, Jesus has a great deal to say about how we're supposed to treat our enemy, and that ain't it. And they're not our enemy. So there's really no excuse, because guess what? They bear the image of the Creator. And so the way that we disagree with them, I'm not saying you have to agree with them, not at all. But the way we disagree with them, feeling like we have now permission to to slander or to say horrible things or to, to lash out on Facebook or social media, that person is made in the image of God. And they are to be treated as such. From the very beginning of Christianity, we've got one more to go, but before we do that, just before the beginning of Christianity, the belief of, sorry, from the beginning, from the birth of Christianity, the belief of the imago Dei, the idea that we are all made in God's image, has been so practical and so revolutionary. It is a doctrine, it is a belief that gives shape to the way people live lives. That's what doctrine culture, doctrine, gospel doctrine, gospel culture. We, we learn the Bible, we live the Bible. And this reality gives shape to the way we live. And as a result, the Christians understood this Imago Dei concept, and they became, guess what, champions of humanity. And if you were to study the early church, if you study the early church, you would see that, that, yes, they were against abortion, they were against infanticide, but they also, they also were champions of the poor, champions of women, champions of orphans, of the weak, of those who are on the outside of society, on the margins. They, were, they championed them. They brought them in. They cared for them. They loved them. And as a result, even the, their, 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 uh, their rate of fertility increased and mortality, I guess, decreased. I'm not totally sure how you say that one. But they live longer lives because they just practice this stuff. They cared for each other. That's the kind of church that we ought to be, that God's calling us to a church that loves our neighbor regardless of who our neighbor is. And I'm telling you right now, that is a revolutionary concept. It was a revolutionary concept in the Roman Empire, and it is today as well. It is today as well. This is a significant thing. The last category is, I want you to just think of, we, we must cherish all those things, but we also must cherish our own life. You must cherish your life. Second leading cause of death in the U.S. between the ages of 10 and 35 is suicide. It has increased 23% between 2009 and 2018. 
steadily increasing over the last 10 years. And the numbers just keep going up and up. The odds are there are some here today struggling in life, maybe difficult relationships, no direction, overcome with a sense of sadness so heavy you just don't know if you can go on. Statistically, there are people like that in this room today. What you need to be reminded of, what you need to hear, is that your life is precious to God. When you feel like nobody else cares, be assured God does. So much so that he would take his very image and place it inside of you. That's how important and valuable you are to God. He wants you. The creator of the universe wants you. He sent his son to die for you. Your life matters. It's precious to God. Now, here's the deal. As we just think of some of those different categories, the truth is we are all breakers of the sixth commandment. I am. You are. Every single one of us. We're all breakers of the sixth commandment. Though I doubt anyone, I sure hope anyone, no one in this room has actually committed murder, there, there is no one in this room who is innocent. If you have anger in your heart, Jesus tells us the truth is, you also have blood on your hands. So what do we do? Well, this is what we do. We look to the cross where we see hanging on that tree, hands nailed to the cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to take away that sin that's rooted in your heart came to take it away. The only man who lived his entire life without violating a single commandment. He's innocent. We're not. Never committed murder with his hands or in his heart, yet his murder, his crucifixion, is ultimately the reason why you and I can have life, experience freedom, and the forgiveness of sins. It only comes because Jesus, Son of God, was murdered on your my behalf. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because Jesus bore them on the cross. He was murdered for you and for me. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, that we may live and know true life. So church, as we consider being a people who obey God's word, who are formed and shaped by God's word, we must be a people. There are so many narratives out there right now of how we are to treat others. Some of those categories. We must be a people who recognize the Imago Dei that is in every single human being and treat them as if they are sacred to God because they are. Because they are. This is a, uh, this is a high calling. It's a very unique one. It's one that is a church that we have to embrace. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for, for just the Ten Commandments. And what a reminder of um, not just the life that you've called us to, uh, that you've mapped for us through your word and through the law, Lord, but also the life that you have given to us through your grace. And is that by that grace alone that we are saved. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy and um, for the way that you have accomplished our salvation.
through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your holy and precious name.